My name is Ashley, and this is Let's Talk Dispatch. I do. <laughs> You're going to do it. Do it really well. And I believe the world needs more dispatchers. The mud, blood, and beer. years that I'm not working 4th of July. 4th of July. Hey, community policing, right? What about community dispatching? So on this show, with the help of my guests, we will educate, empower, and support the heroes behind the headset. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode here on Let's Talk Dispatch. Um, you know, on my social medias and things of that nature, um, I'm starting to get a lot of really good traction. Um, my reels and things are getting a lot of views, reaching people outside of the dispatch world. And the funny thing about being out here on the social medias and things like that is that you are like my guest, you know, you're, you're being vulnerable with strangers and you'd be surprised how often, um, people provide their opinions and their feedback in regards to dispatchers being first responders and things of that nature. And it's not always uh, a positive reaction. There's still a lot of folks out there who don't believe that dispatchers are first responders. Um, And really what it all circles back to is just a lack of knowledge, a lack of awareness. And really the reason that we're doing this podcast, creating these platforms on social media, creating this content that's relatable to people who are consuming it, the everyday citizen. um, That's why we're doing it. And one thing I won't do on any of my platforms is debate um, if a, if a first responder is a dispatcher, if a dispatcher is a first responder. Um, but what we're here for is to provide this information, to provide this context to the everyday citizen. And the more they see content like we have at the Raspy Dispatcher, like we have on all these other platforms that are pushing this um, idea, this truth that dispatchers are first responders, the more consumable it'll be, the more folks who aren't dealing with this type of job, this type of environment on a daily basis are will easily look and go, oh yeah, that's true, and keep it moving. So uh, for everyone who's following me on these social media platforms, thank you so much. I've reached over 2,000 followers on my Instagram page, over 2,000 followers on my Facebook, and we're reaching so many more people, which is amazing. Even though we got a few trolls out there, it's all good because all we're doing is spreading truth and positivity. So with all that being said, we're going to bring my next guest on Let's Talk Dispatch on today. They've been working with their department since 2008. They've dispatched police and fire services, and they're their department's training coordinator as well as a supervisor. Oh, and they're also their union president, which we're definitely going to dive into because a lot of folks do ask about dispatchers being unionized and things of that nature when they're considering this job. She has a ton of experience, and we get to hear all about it today. My guest, Rochelle. Hi, Rochelle. Hey. How you doing? I'm good. Oh, my How gosh. I, I am well. I am well. A little tired. I have a little Starbucks here. Um, not not a paid ad, but we're, we're out here trying. Oh, yes. man. Well, this just cannot I, live without their coffee. <laughs> that's the truth. Caffeine and chaos, you know, we're thriving on it. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being willing to jump on the show today. Um, I yes. believe you, you uh, hopped on and grabbed a guest slot when I posted on my socials 
um, that I was looking for folks to come onto the show. And yes. I really appreciate you be willing to, to jump on here. Yes, I'm super excited. I cannot wait. I have so much <laughs> stuff to tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, everybody? Listen to that. We're about to dive deep. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into public safety, all that good stuff. Um, so I started in 2008. Um, it's a funny story. So I moved into a house and um, my landlord at the time, I didn't know when I moved in, you know, you went through like your questions and stuff that they ask you when you're applying to rent a house and things like that. And he was asking me about my job. Well, I worked in a different city that was about an hour away and I had to commute about an hour every day. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, talking to him about the weather and driving and, you know, how it sometimes takes a long time. And he's like, well, you know, the type of job that you do, if you wanted to, you could apply at where I work. And I was like, okay, you know, tell me more. And so he started talking about it and everything. And he made it sound so amazing. He's like, well, you can come and, you know, answer some, sorry, I had a, he's like, you can come and answer some 911 calls for me. And he's like, it's super super um easy and it's not that big of a deal and and i was like okay you know i'll do that and he's like um i'm a detective i was like oh that's cool like i I wanted to know you know a little bit more about it and so he kind of sent me an email with the job application and i filled out the application and it was a super long process it took about two and a half months before they even contacted me because they had to do all kinds of background checks and make sure, you know, you were fit for the job and everything. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I worked in like a call center before. So it was like a customer service type background. And I started there. And like my first week I was like, oh my God, this is completely different (laughs) from what I did before. And um, I mean, the rest was just kind of history after that. It was like, I was sucked in, you know, (laughs) I love that the landlord was handing out like housing and job applications. They were just like, look, (laughs) we're going to kill two birds with one stone here. He's like, we need people. You would be awesome at it. I was like, "Um, you don't really know me, but okay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. It's always so interesting, like how people like find this line of work, right? Like it's just, if you never would have rented this place, you know, would you ever have had this interaction or this knowledge to look into this career? You know what I mean? Like, it's just always so interesting how one thing can change our whole trajectory. And it's like just a right place, right time thing for sure, because I've always been like interested in like true crime and stuff like that. And when I was younger, I wanted to, um, be into law enforcement. So it was like just a passion right from the get go. And I, you never really know what people do as a 911 dispatcher until you're in there and you actually see everything going on and you see, you know, somebody taking their first serious call, things like that. And it's like such a well-oiled machine and it just draws you in. You're like, I want to do that. That is something I want to be that person someday you know? And it's just so crazy because you see all of that stuff and you're like, oh my God, will I ever be able to do that? Am I going to be able to be that calm? Am I going to, you know? And it just, it's so amazing. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really is. I remember when I did my, um, my sit along and I sat with um, someone who ended up being my coworker eventually, but I was watching them like just feel these calls and like remain so steady, so calm, yes. so professional, 
Um, so empathetic, you know, for my two hour sit along. And I remember leaving and getting in my car and like, after watching this person perform in this manner, thinking like, wow, like that's, I want to be that. I want to do that job like them. So, because if they made me feel that way, you know, just sitting there watching them, I can only imagine how their callers felt, you know, with them as a dispatcher, like, because they made me feel great. And I was just watching them do the job, let alone be the person in the crisis, you know, it's, yes. Yeah. It's just so impactful how much a dispatcher can make or break a call, you know? Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm -hmm. We talk about it all the time. Yeah. We talk about how, you know, if you're answering a phone, you know, I'm pretty old school. I've been there for a very long time. So when I started, dispatchers were not very well recognized. It was um, a situation where you're kind of the heard but not seen, but not really heard because the officer, you know, was the face type of thing. So Mm -hmm. um, it it was more of just do the right thing, make, you know, make these choices, make the officer look good. You want to make the officer look good. And so I always try to train my people that if somebody's calling in and they're irate, they're freaking out, they're yelling, they're screaming. If I can get them from a 10 to like at least a good five before mm-hmm. the officers get there, it's safe for everybody. You know, they're not going to be causing a scene, getting in trouble. They're not going to be amped up. They're not going to be more likely to want to, you know, go crazy with the officers or whatever. So it's safe for the officers and it's safe for them. You know, it's so yeah. important to be that empathetic person. Yeah, I mean, life-saving things, life-saving measures start the moment we pick up that 911 call. And that is something that folks have a hard time understanding in regards Mm -hmm. to the debate about dispatchers being first responders and whatnot, is if I am not successful at my job, getting the location, getting the description, providing CPR, you know, things of that nature, depending on what kind of dispatch you are, Mm -hmm. it could change the call completely. If I get a wrong location and we don't go the right location, that, that could mean lives, right? Like if I'm not able to provide CPR or get that person to start doing CPR before my units arrive, that could be the difference between a survival and non, right? Like, and it just goes to show the teamwork that happens in emergency services that everyone is not, not aware of. And they really should be. Oh yes, for sure. It definitely starts with us. I mean, we can make or break a situation very easily. I feel like it's super important. (laughs) No, it is. And I mean, if you think about just the responding units, right? Like if I hype my caller up, like you said, if I take them from a 10 to a 20, you know, then my officers, they're dealing with someone, essentially I pissed off more, you know, like that's not helping my officer. But like you said, if I can get them to come down to realize like we're here, we're helping, we're doing everything we can, my officer is going to have a better interaction with that citizen. And that citizen hopefully never has to call 911 again, right? And they can look back at that one time they called 911 and know they had a good interaction with the dispatcher, a good interaction with law enforcement, fired personnel, like whoever, and know it was a positive experience. Because what do we do when we have a a story to tell? We either tell it in a positive light or we tell it in a negative one. And I want every time someone talks about me in my department 
in my interactions with them to be positive. Like I had right. this terrible day, but so-and-so made it better. Right. Yeah. Cause I don't, I think sometimes it's hard, especially if you're in dispatch for the long run, you know, and you, we deal with everybody's terrible situation. So we're getting all bad and, and sometimes, you know, every once in a while we get mixed in that little good, but for the most part, we're getting every single person's worst call. And so it's kind of hard sometimes to get your mind switched out of, Hey, there's people that do have good days. We can make a positive outcome in things, you know, it's so hard to get that wrapped around your mind. Mm-hmm. It's so true. So I think people sometimes just go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 please, please finish. I was, I was just going to say, so like if I'm dealing with, you know, one call after another call after another call and everybody's so upset and so mad, it's hard sometimes not to get that jaded personality where you're like, okay, everybody's just angry. Everybody's mad. You know, the whole world's angry, you know, and then for me, it helps because you'll get those calls and then you'll get that one call where you're talking to somebody and they'll say, thank you, or you made a difference to me, or I really appreciate you, or you have some type of positive outcome. And it's so beneficial, I think, to you as a person, because it kind of gives you that satisfaction of, okay, so I can actually be a good person sometimes too, you know? Yeah. And it it is so true. I mean, like, you know, I called out sick a couple weeks ago and I remember I just wasn't feeling great. And, you know, you know, when a dispatcher calls out, like it's anxiety to the max, you gotta like hype yourself up. You know, you can be in the hospital post-surgery and still try to go shift, you know, oh but God, yeah. <laughs> I remember like just feeling like sick and just going, I don't want to yell that today. Like I don't, in addition to not feeling great, I was like, I'm not looking to get yelled at today. I don't want to get yelled at by these citizens who are having a bad right. day. Like I'm human too. And I think that's okay to acknowledge like some days, you know, I just don't, I don't want to deal with it, especially if I'm not feeling my hundred percent, you know, so we're humans answering these phones as well. We understand you're not having Mm -hmm. the best day, but we're trying to work with each other, you know, to make it a successful call. Yeah. So what was it? You got to have that mental capacity. (laughs) Yeah, no, straight up. What was it like for you in the beginning? You you get this new new house uh, and then you show up to your new job. Like, what was that process yeah. like in the beginning? So we didn't do sit-ins until you actually got hired. So when I got hired, I was two months pregnant with my youngest son. And I already had, you know, like emotions going all over with my hormones <laughs> and everything. So I go in there and... The, the first interview that I did, I come in and it's like a panel of like seven people. And so you're already nervous because you don't really know what to expect. And I go in and I sit down and I'm like surrounded by seven people who are like super straight faced and they're like, and asking me questions and I'm like so nervous. So I'm answering everything, you know, and I felt super intimidated because, you know, usually if you don't have any interaction with law enforcement, you're going to the police station for not a good thing. Right. So I'm going in there and I'm like, okay, I'm trying not to be nervous. I'm trying not to be like sweaty. Don't look at me. You know, I'm trying to answer these questions professional and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I had that interaction. And then the next time that they you know, offered me the job, I came in and that was my first like interaction with them. And so I come in and everybody has their, you know, assigned place and 
there were people that had been there for 20 years. There were people that had been there for a year. It was, you know, mixed experience. And you have the people that, you know, have been there for a while that nobody really talks to because they don't want to make them upset or, you know, whatever. And so I kind of saw that initial everybody fits in their certain place type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, where am I going to fit into this? Like I'm an outgoing person. I like to talk and make friends. I like to, you know, see what everybody's doing. I'm the one that's like up hopping around talking to everybody and everybody's just sitting there and they're like super professional, you know, (laughs) okay. Am I going to be able to do this? I have to turn like a serious face on. Okay. Now I have to talk to these people. And so when I was in there doing my first like actual monitoring and stuff, I, um, one of the girls that was sitting with me, I had like a headset strapped in listening to them and she was taking a call and it it ended up being a, like a really serious situation. Like the guy had barricaded himself in the house and wasn't going to come out. And we had to call out SWAT and all of that. And she was so super calm. Well, he wanted to call in and talk to her instead of the actual negotiator because she Mm -hmm. had talked to him to begin with. So she had built that rapport and she was talking to him the whole time. And it was like a good two hour long ordeal. You know, they got him out of the house safe. Everything was Mm -hmm. good. And then I looked at her. I'm like, um, how do you talk to these people like that? Like, how do you sit there and know that this person is heavily armed? He's wanting to, you know, kill officers. He's wanting to kill people. He's talking to you and you're talking to him like you're his best friend. Like, how do you do that? You know? Yeah. And she's like, you'll, you'll get there. You'll be there one day. <laughs> I don't know that. You'll be there. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's so like intimidating. No, it, it is so true. And I mean, to a point, like also, um, I've had these situations as well where, you know, subjects barricaded, you start the call, you transfer it to a detective or a CNT trained officer and, you know, whatnot. And it does open the question of like, why aren't dispatchers mm-hmm. trained with that precise? Because I mean, that's really a lot of what we're doing before yeah. we're, we're negotiating, we're bringing people down to a level, you know, um, we do get stuck on the phone with these people sometimes. And yes. sometimes like you, the story you told, they don't want to talk to the cop. You know, they want to talk to the person that they've been talking to until folks arrived. And so having, I think having dispatchers trained in that type of negotiation style is something we should be doing more often than, than less. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it would be really beneficial because we've already built that rapport. We've already talked to them. We've, you know, you're on the phone with them until somebody can get there or a negotiator. I mean, there's been times I've been on the phone with people for hours, you know, you're Mm -hmm. talking to them and you're getting to know everything about them. Like you have that, that rapport and that respect. So then to throw somebody else on the phone, sometimes it's hit or miss, you know? Yeah, no, really. And I mean, in regards to like, I think out here, like I'm in a bigger metropolitan city area. Our response mm-hmm. time is it's pretty quick in in the city mm-hmm. that I that I work in currently. It, but that's not the case in in all the yeah. places that we're answering nine one one. Some places we have really rural areas when there's mm-hmm. like one sheriff, they're covering units like forty five minutes away. You know, yeah. like there's there's situations like that that. If you're not living in it, you're not dispatching in it, you're not experiencing it, you don't think that's 
that's reality. You know, I think most citizens believe we teleport and <laughs> we we don't. We would prefer that they did as well. We don't want to sit on the right. phone, you know, for that long either. But right. sometimes we get we do get stuck on these calls because, you know, we don't have an officer available or they're coming from a, a distance or, you know, they're going from one hot call to another. And it is right. our job to stay on that phone when the situation calls for it until Mm -hmm. cover arrives. And while you're doing that, you're going through someone's ups and downs and you're managing that because again, how you handle that call is going to directly impact that officer, that unit, that fire firefighters interaction with that individual when they get on scene. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I think that's super important. I know I, I've taught some classes for some very rural areas where they don't have anybody on duty after a certain amount of time. I know like our local highway patrol, they don't have anybody after like a certain time at night. They have to actually call somebody and wake them up and wait for them to get up, get ready, get dressed and then come to work. So there's a long response time for that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's crazy. Right. I mean, it's just, and the thing is like, I think when people hear that they're like, how is this even, you know, a thing like, you know, but a, the realities of how people operate in different areas, it's just, it's just a different reality. Right. Like I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine living where I live, the hearing that you have to call and wake someone up. Like, it's just like, that, that doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. But if I was living in a rural area, you know, that would make sense. And I probably know the person you're waking up, you know, like those things, those things translate better and departments are going to create policy and create shifts and things like that, that serve their community best because nine times out of 10, nothing's happening, right? Like, you know, nothing's going on. Right. There's no need for that person to be up, but they need to be available if something does happen. And that's, what we're here for when, when the thing happens. Right. Yeah. I'm just lucky to be part of an agency that we have somebody on full time all the time. I mean, we have several officers, but we do like, I, I do the police, the city police, we do the county sheriff, and then we do the fire for the city and the county. But our county fire is the same way. They're all volunteer people. So if there's a good fire um, out in the county, we have to call them, you know, and get them, waking up from home. So they're going to have to get up, go home, but get ready at home, then go to the fire station, get the stuff that they need and then go to the fire. And sometimes, like you said, it is a good 45 minutes out. So if they get a good fire, there's a good chance that there's a lot of stuff that's burnt by the time they get there, you know? Yeah. It's really, it really is. It's wild. It's wild. It always (laughs) amazes me how different this job looks every place you know what i mean like every place it just looks so different and folks are just finding so many creative ways to do a job when it looks different Mm -hmm. you know um i couldn't imagine like when i get on and i have no units available stresses me out (laughs) i'm like something's gonna happen i need someone to be ready to go you know and then we have folks who are dispatching with one person in the center you know no units available because yes. everyone's sleep and then something pops off and you're just like, now I got to go wake this person up. And it just looks so different. And, you know, kudos for folks who are working yes. in one person dispatch centers in these small, smaller rural communities. I mean, I can imagine it. It has to be a different level of tough, I would say. <laughs> yeah. It gives me like, 
like I said, I've taught classes for people that work in a one person center and they're like, you know, we, we work in a one person center. We're also like our jailer. We cook meals for the, for the inmates. We book in people, we take people to court. I'm like, how do you do that? You know, like that, that, that's just doesn't process in my mind. Like they say, you know, if they're on a 911 call and they put dinner in the oven, sometimes it can get burnt because they're too, you know, they're busy on the phone dealing with whatever the situation may be. And I'm like, that just doesn't process in my mind because I work for a center that there is not one time that I'm not busy and not on the phone. There's no way I could be available to cook meals. I can't feed them. In me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it works. It works. I don't know. Yeah, no. Um, the idea of a being a jailer as a dispatcher is wild to me. But yeah. cooking, like, if that was, I wouldn't be hired. They were like, "Look, like sometimes you got to cook for the inmates." I'm like, "That's a if I feed them." We're going to open ourselves up for a lawsuit because they're going to eat my food and they're going to be like, this is inhumane because (laughs) that's that's why my, my partner does all the cooking because it's just, (laughs) it wouldn't be good if I said feeding folks. They would be eating some burnt fish sticks or something like that. Right? There's no way. <laughs> some dino nuggets. Like, what are we doing here? What's happening? Oh, that's yeah. wild. That's so funny. Well, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned um, when talking about coming on the show was tactical dispatch, yes. active shooter situations. Um, you know, these are for folks who are not not in this line of work. You know, these are things that we see and hear about, unfortunately. So much yeah. more often um, than, you know, I remember when I was a kid, Columbine happened and now it's just like the the list is endless. So these type of calls um, that require tactical dispatch that are active shooter scenarios are calls that are a dispatcher's worst nightmare. We never yes. want to have to take this type of call. It's a life-changing type of call, mm-hmm. um, but we're also paid to be prepared to take mm-hmm. this kind of call. So for folks who are listening, folks who are doing this job, uh, folks who are just out there in the everyday world, what are some things to consider um, with these type of situations as a dispatcher? So for me, tactical dispatching, active shooter type of stuff, I know it sounds really kooky, but we all have some weird sense of humor. So I, mm-hmm. it's a passion of mine. I, I love getting to know, you know, the ins and the outs and what makes people do that. So it's a passion that I've had. My grandpa, that he was a sheriff deputy um, in Colorado. And Mm -hmm. when I was younger, he worked the Columbine incident. Um, So the, the, the summer after it happened, I got to, I was, I think I was like, 13, 14 years old, but I got to go down there and actually go in Columbine and go around. And he showed me, you know, the incident, the way that things happened, you know, the windows that you see the kids and everybody jumping out. And it kind of impacted me a lot in the way that, you know, you think about things and and things like that. So that's something that I've always had super dear to my heart. Um, I have a lot of family that lives in Colorado and I had a couple of family members that just barely missed the the movie theater shooting, the Batman shooting, they were supposed yeah. to go to that premiere and they didn't end up going. Um, wow. One of my, one of my cousins got kind of stood up. <laughs> she was supposed to go on a blind date and she got stood up, which was like the luckiest thing to happen to her because she wow. didn't end up going to that shooting. 
Um, So she would have potentially been a victim, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just something that I've been super passionate about and wanting to learn more about. I think the big thing is, like you said, it is a dispatcher's worst nightmare. And for those small centers that have one or two dispatchers working, I just cannot comprehend in my mind how you would be able to do that because you're getting so many calls. The big thing to think about is the calls that you would get like on an average rec, you multiply that by like a hundred, you know, you're getting phones ringing off the hook. And then with our newer technology that we have, have, um, you know, the next gen 911 stuff, you're going to be getting the text dispatching, you're going to be getting the text to 911, you're going to be getting emails. I mean, everybody's going to be calling, because Mm -hmm. the majority of the times these incidents are at, you know, highly populated areas. Mm -hmm. So my biggest thing to think about is, how long should you stay on the phone? How long am I going to stay on the phone with each person? Because everybody is going to be wanting to give their side of the story and have something important to say, but you're not going to be able to stay on the phone with every single person that long, right? You're just going to have to get the information that you can. So what I try to teach people, what I tell people is you want to be on the phone with the person who has the most accurate and up-to-date information. Like, can you see the shooter? Do you know where the shooter's at? And that's the person that I want to stay on the phone with. If they can't see that person anymore and they're going to have to be in a safe place, that's a big thing too. I, you know, make sure they're in a safe place to give you that information. But if they can't see them anymore, I want to know where you're at. But in that moment, you're not as useful to me. So I have to get off the phone and answer the phone for the next person to see if they have any more credible information. And Mm -hmm. I think in incidents like that, it's so hard because these are all victims and you're wanting to be there for them. But you have to know you have to get, you know, the next updated information because that's what your officers are going to need. Yeah. And another thing that happens a lot of time with like these active shooter situations, especially when it's like at a high school or, you know, a a school, um, you get all the parents calling. Um, So if you're listening, um, calling 911, asking what's going on, it floods our lines. You know, like we are trying to find the person who's calling in, like Rochelle said, with the accurate side of the person, most accurate information. And if I'm answering 911 from frantic family members, which rightfully so, um, you're preventing me from doing my job. You're preventing me from helping your family. And that's just the harsh reality. And it's kind of hard to tell people that in the, you know, they want someone to comfort them. Someone to tell me that, tell them that it's okay. And they're okay. Their loved one's okay. But A, I don't know. I don't know where your loved one is at this moment. I can't tell you anything other than we're working it, right? So calling and flooding the lines is it's just preventing us from doing the job because now I got to work to get you off the phone just to answer the next call, which is trying to find that person who's looking at them, seeing it just happen or, you know, so we don't want to flood the lines either. Before we continue, we wanted to take a moment to thank our partners at Prepared. You can learn more about the awesome support and technology Prepared provides to first responders by heading to prepared911.com. Partners like Prepared help to continue our mission of supporting, empowering, and educating the heroes under the headset. You can learn more about our resources and partnerships by heading to theraspydispatcher.com. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. And I think the next thing is, like I said, you're going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you to stay 
on the phone and hard to get off the phone because these are people that have been shot. They're victims. And you're, we're here to our, you know, it's our first instinct to want to help people, to want to comfort them. But in that instance, you can't really stay on the phone with them either. I mean, there's certain, you know, protocols that you have to have and, and things like that. But just making sure that those people recognize that when the officers get there, they're more than likely not coming straight to them. They're going to go get the bad guy and then coming to them. You know, I mean, we've had situations where the officers will have to step over the injured, but they're going there to eliminate the problem, make sure that, you know, it's the best possible outcome. And then they're going to come and get those, those that are injured, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's something that has developed and progressed, right? As we've had Mm -hmm. more active shooter situations, the way officers are taught to respond um, has been critiqued, has been improved, has been, you know, um, made to be so different than let's say Columbine years ago, you know, like the way we respond now is just so, so different. You're right. Like as a, as an officer, like their first instinct when they get onto a scene and someone's bleeding is to start, you know, pre-arrival tourniqueting, like helping for when medics arrive, but medics can't come on the scene until right. the threat's eliminated. And I don't know if right. people quite understand that fully. Um, but most times and I think now they kind of move with them sometimes depending on the situation, but most times the medics aren't going in until the threat in the scene is secured, which is why officers respond yeah. so quickly now and they move so quickly because the sooner they can get in the sooner that the medics are going to be coming in right behind them yes for sure and i would also say to any dispatchers listening out there to get involved with your schools with your local big businesses um we do a lot of scenario training with our schools where we go into schools and they allow the dispatchers and the the, you know, officers to do drills so we can see, you know, how they how they do it, the way that they go in and how they respond and, and things like that. And it gives you a better understanding so that you can dispatch those calls and know what's going on. And, you know, the information to give to people when they're calling in because, you know, the approach that they're going to take. I think it's super important to do that. I mean, if you have big businesses in your town, malls. I know malls aren't a big, huge thing anymore, but strip malls, um, Walmarts are always big, things like that, Mm -hmm. that, that there's a potential for so many people to get hurt, you know, reach out to those places and and try to talk to them about coming up with a plan or even going in there and seeing what their plan is, because it's going to help you so much. It's so true. And if you're someone who's a supervisor or, you know, um, have that that standing in your department, you should be advocating for dispatch to be heavily involved in these training scenarios because though it is super important for your officers to know how they're going to move, how they're going to respond, how they're going to, you know, shield up, less lethal, all that stuff, you know, how they're going in before they get there dispatchers are handling these calls. You know, we as dispatchers need to know what our stance is, what we're allowed to tell people. Is there a place that we're telling them to, to move to? Like, what are these, how are we responding to all the folks who are calling in as our officers are heading that way? What is how, you know, how can we help our officers? What questions should we be asking about this specific location that can help our officers responding. You know, those are the things that we should be involved in as well when we're doing this tactical scenario training. 
Yes, for sure. It's very important. And I mean, we're all dispatchers. We all have the same mind frame. I know everybody has their own individual, you know, characteristics, but for the most part, we're all drawn to this job for a reason. And we all like to know the ins and outs of everything. So, I mean, you can look up, you know, certain things. There's, I know I've looked up, you know, like blueprints or whatever for schools, just to get an idea of how many entrances there are, just in case something, because you never know, you're not able to predict when that's going to happen. It's going to happen. You just don't know when, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things like we're, we're paid to respond. We're paid to be prepared. And I know that Oftentimes, I think citizens want us to be preventative. You know, they want us to prevent the thing from happening. Um, It just, unfortunately, it just, most of the time, 95% of the time, we're responsive. A thing Mm -hmm. occurs, you call for help, we send help, you know. Um, Sure, like, we should be saturating areas, you know, we should, we should be looking for things, but no victim, no crime, right? So Mm -hmm. it's just, we can't prevent things from necessarily happening all the time. But when we respond appropriately, you know, we save lives and it's super important to be prepared for that response. Yes, for sure. It's very important. And I I think that, I think that it is adjusted a little bit when I first started and I I talked I started training and, and getting everything, you know, where I would talk to the newer dispatchers. Um, The biggest call that they were all afraid of is like, when you ask any group of new newbie, we like to call them the newbie dispatchers, but any group of newer dispatchers, their first instinct, when you say, what's this, what's the call that you're most afraid of? They say suicidal caller. Like that's, that's Mm -hmm. this most scared because it's so uncontrollable. You don't, you don't know the outcome. You don't know what's going to go on. But here lately, it's been a shift of, you know, an active shooter situation. That's that's mm-hmm. their biggest fear. And I think rightfully so, because like you said, that's more of a a, a reality that we live in right now. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. I mean, it's wild how many active shooter calls are out there. I mean, even even on the smaller scale, like, I don't know what the actual number is that equals active shooter or equals, you know, um, that situation, but there's, there's plenty, I'm sure that don't make it even to these new streams, you know, right? where, you know, three, four people are getting hit in these cities and towns that we've never heard of. Um, and the dispatchers in that area are handling, handling those calls. And even though it never makes it to mainstream media, um, it's, it's just, that's one thing that my brain like really th- like blew up when I started doing this job is like, there's so many things that happen that we never hear about, you yes. know, especially, especially in these bigger cities, you know, that I've worked in. I mean, there's so much thing, like there's so many victims out there and it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, but, you know, a good dispatcher can make the difference in those situations and we can have this lasting impact on someone who doesn't know or probably will never even know our name. You know, I mean, that's the reality right. of it. It is. It really is. I mean, and, you know, I would say that the majority of the people don't get into this job to become somebody, you know, we get in the job to help people. We get in the job to make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's getting better. It's definitely gotten a lot better, but you know, I can remember back five, six years ago where it was, you, you did a good job, but you know, 
are you going to get told you did a good job? Is anybody going to say anything? As long as everything went smoothly, you know, mm -hmm. and you didn't hear anything that was considered a good job. You know? <laughs> I hate that the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, you, it is one of those things like we, as now we're talking about like leadership in our comm centers. It's like, I want to hear from my supervisors on good days. Yeah as well yes. you know like i if i'm only hearing about you when i'm being coached critiqued or you know um a harder conversation it doesn't feel genuine it doesn't really feel like you're really uh pouring into my my dislike me being a better dispatcher it's just like you're checking a box you're making sure that i'm doing these things which i should be you know of course coach me right. critique me correct me um when i do poorly on a call but I also want to hear about the good things that I've done. And if right. the only time I hear from you or have a connection with my supervisor is during a coaching, it's like, do you really, it doesn't feel genuine. It doesn't feel like you really care about, you know, my, my uh, growth as a dispatcher. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I think a big thing for leadership, it's important to, get to know your people. You want to know what your individual dispatchers passions are, the things that they like. I mean, I have people who, you know, are more focused on accident calls. And then I have people that are more focused on, you know, talking to suicidal callers. And if I hear them dealing with those type of calls, I'll kind of, you know, perk my ear up a little bit. And then when they get done with it, I'll, I'll let them know, you know, like you did a really good job. That was really good. You know, and then on the other side of that, if if there were some things that they're feeling upset about and, and I still think they did a good job, I, I let them know, you know, I think that that went, you know, the best possible way. But what do you think you could have done? Like, what what are things that you think next time you could have done? And we'll kind of work on that and, you know, progress from there. Because like you said, it is good to have that critique, but you also want to know, hey, somebody's listening and they know that I did a good job. Somebody who in essence is my mentor or whatever is telling me that they think I did awesome. That means I did really good. You know, mm -hmm. and it's, we feed off of that. We thrive off of that. Yeah. And I mean, it goes a long way, especially when we're talking about like our mental health, you know, mm -hmm. as first responders, you know, I, we definitely come a long way um, in regards to letting first responders have feelings, you know, I think for a long time, um, especially for the infield first responders, it's, you know, sweep under the rug, you know, you're good, like show up, don't say nothing. And we've really moved away from that. Um, we're starting to move away from that yes. um, in this industry as a whole, which is amazing. You know, we're talking about mental health. We're talking about, you know, therapy. We're talking about, uh, you know, using our resources and services to help us. Um, and then, dispatchers are now entering the scene in a more vocal manner. You know, yeah. hey, we're here too. Um, I listened to that person um, unalive themselves on the phone. Like I listened to the family member who found them. I, you know, heard the person who was harmed by their partner. All those things are piling up in our backpacks, you know. Um, and now we're, we're saying we need assistance too we yeah. were we're exposed to this trauma as well um and we're being more recognized in that sense so what do you think has helped change that view on mental health for first responders and dispatchers specifically i think it's it's a long road you know i mean like i said i come from 
the the old school mentality of you don't let things affect you, you don't let things bother you, but that's not reality. You know, we're all human. We all have emotions. And like you said, there's only a certain amount of suicidal people. There's only a certain amount of deaths and things that you can deal with without it affecting you at all. After a certain amount of time, it's going to affect anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had conversations with officers who have told me, you know, in retrospect, being the dispatcher, the one who answers that phone call and hearing all of those things is a lot more severe than going out there and seeing it. I feel like it would affect, they felt like it would affect them more than mm-hmm. being out there and seeing this situation, how it unfolded, um, and then the potential outcome, because we don't always get those outcomes. We get, you know, the first start of everything, and then we have to hang up the phone and take the next call, you know? And so there's a lot of unfinished stories in our, in our brains that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And we don't, always get that ending. I mean, sometimes if you work for a center that works with your officers, you can kind of reach out to the officers and go, Hey, was that person okay? Or whatever. I don't know what everybody's rules and stuff are. Everybody has different rules. Um, but we, we never really get a conclusion to every single call that we take because we're busy on the next call, you know, and for the officers, they, they go out and they're dealing with that traumatic experience and they're putting their life physically on the line. Um, Mm -hmm. but when they're done with that call, they have that second to kind of debrief, get their self together in their car or whatever they need to do, as opposed to a dispatcher that we're off the phone and in two seconds later, we're on the phone with somebody else's, you know, traumatic mm-hmm. incident. So we don't necessarily have that time to process or even think about what's going on. So, so true. I feel like, like after a while, never it's kind of build- yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's like the never ending story. You know, I think, I think one thing that people can get caught up in, and I mean us in the field as well as out, is comparing the trauma. Like, um, well, they're in person, so, you know, their trauma is heavier than yours. Or, you know, we're answering 40 calls compared to their two. Our trauma is worse than theirs. And it's just, it just is trauma. Like, it's not about yes. weighing whose trauma's worth more. Um, you know, it's right. it's trauma, period. It's it's just it's trauma. They right. they have traumatic experiences. We have traumatic experience. We're both willingly opening ourselves up to that because we're choosing this line of work. And we should both receive services to help when yes. those things get too heavy for us. Yes. Yeah, so with us, I, I hope and I pray that it gets the same with everybody. But with us, we've had the unique opportunity to be more involved with like the debriefings. And we have a mental health debrief on major incidents. And then we have a, a strategical debrief. So we'll talk about, you know, the things that we did, the things that we didn't do, um, the things that we could do to make it better. But then we have um, a debriefing with our like mental health liaison. And, and they talk to us about, you know, the way things process in your mind and how, you know, if you don't know the end of the story, sometimes we make it up and it could end up being more severe than what it actually was. So it has more of an impact on you and things like that. And then we also do them with the officers. So that way we can see, you know, what their side of the story is, because like you said, it is both traumatic for the person involved 
and the person who took the phone call. It's Mm -hmm. in a different way, but it's equal. And so the way that they're seeing things sometimes isn't 100% the way that we're seeing things, but we're both impacted. And I, I think we've came a long way in that perspective because I can remember years ago where we didn't have that. We didn't have that at all. You know, it was just, okay, see you tomorrow, you know, and you went home to yourself thinking, okay, what could I have done? What, you know, all of these things. And I know when I first got into this job, um, the people that I worked with had been there for a very long time. And so they were kind of used to this. So when I took, you know, some some calls that kind of didn't feel right and I didn't really know how they sat with me and, and I didn't really get explained the whole mental health thing. It kind of, it kind of freaked me out a little bit because I'm like, okay, so I'm thinking about this and then I go to sleep and I wake up and I'm still thinking about this, you know, and then I go to work and I answer the phone. And when I answer the phone, I'm thinking that this call is going to be the same scenario of the one that I dealt with yesterday that really bothered me and it still bothers me. So now I'm kind of hesitant to, to answer the phone, but I know I have to answer the phone because it's my job, you know, but I don't want that to happen again. And it just plays over in your mind and and Mm -hmm. it does impact you. And I think getting out there and talking about it and letting everybody know that, yeah, we all feel the same way. We all, although we all have our own traumatic calls that we take, they have the potential to affect everybody in a similar fashion. And it's okay to talk about it. You know, it's okay to, to, to reach out to fellow dispatchers or, or, you know, things like that and have those conversations because we're all going through the same type of mental situations. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started, I took this like weird call. It was like non-emergency call. Someone like breaking in. Um, and I remember when I got off work that night, cause it was like some weird overtime that I worked. Um, I remember like checking my locks around my house like yes. two extra times than I normally did. <laughs> you know? yes. Just because I thought of that call, I thought of that situation. It sat with me a little bit and I was like, let me just go check these doors and make sure. <laughs> Knowing that yeah. I just locked everything up, but I was like, eh, double check. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, for sure. It does. And I mean, and and you can kind of think about it like for me, it's kind of impacted the way that I parent a little bit too, because we do deal with a lot of, you know, serious stuff and, and it's the worst of the worst type of situations. So mm-hmm. without having that prior knowledge of the way mental health works and things like that, when when my kids were a lot younger. I'm like, okay, every person is trying to sell my kid. Don't talk to my kid. Don't talk to my kid. You know, because that's that's the type of things that we deal with, you know, and having to just kind of settle down a little bit and not be overly protective about every single person. Like, no, the guy at Walmart isn't trying to snatch my kid. He's just trying to get something off the shelf beside me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like straight up. <laughs> and like it just kind of like it it kind of points to how our trauma can like can spill onto our, our yeah. family and our partners because kids are like, why is monkey thinking everybody trying to snatch me up? You know, yeah. like, like those things, like obviously sarcastically about this situation, but <laughs> yes. you know, like our trauma can really like seep into our relationships. And that is one reason why we really need to empower everyone to, you know, own our stuff and seek services and seek help, talk therapy, like whatever it looks like for you. Um, yes. But our partners are going to fill it maybe before we even notice it. So it's just, it's just yeah. nice to do a little cleanup, you know? So yeah. we're not always worried about the guy at Walmart, you know? Right. It's important. Cause I mean, I think 
I don't know if it's the same for everybody, but I know for me, like when I first started, I was like a social butterfly. I wanted to go everywhere. I wanted to do everything. I wanted to be around everybody. And then after like year two, I'm sitting in the grocery store and I'm like, there's so many people here. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? Where's the exit? You know, or even yeah. going to a restaurant, I would, I would be at a restaurant and I'm like, there's a lot of people here. Um, I don't feel comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. and just being, having that understanding of you deal with all of that stuff all the time. So you have to have that reality of like, everybody's not bad just because every phone call you take for 12 hours is a situation. Doesn't mean that everybody in society is horrible, you know? And, yeah. and it is, it is important to have that understanding because we do get that super hypersensitive situational awareness to where we're like, oh my God, something's going to happen everywhere I go. Something's going to happen. And, and unless you can have that mental check with yourself. And like you said, your spouse, your spouse gonna, is going to be at the bar having fun and you're sitting in the corner going, oh my God, somebody's going to come in. And, you know, <laughs> that's not a happy way to be with anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's really important to make sure that you, you can get that figured out and reach out to resources if you are feeling that way. Because I mean, we were, it's natural. Everybody really does go through that, that time where you're like, okay, I don't know about people right now. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I mean, you straight up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is super important. You do, you do look at the world. If you allow yourself to, you can look at the world as very dark and seedy and yeah. there's no good out there. And, You've heard all the worst of the worst. And it's like, yes, that exists. It, it, we know it exists. But like, as you said, no one calls my job on a good day. So yeah, right. all the calls that I'm going to receive at work are going to be terrible. They're going to be shitty. And yeah. you have to remind yourself that you're putting yourself in this line of work to be exposed to those calls, but it's not the majority of the right. world because it's really easy to look and go, oh, this place is trash. <laughs> right. But there's so much good out there in the world. And uh, sometimes you got to work a little harder to find it because you're exposed yes. to all, all the terrible things, but it's there. I promise it's yeah. out there. <laughs> well, Michelle, uh, as we're coming to an end, uh, the last thing that I always ask all my guests is what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in dispatch? Um, for me, I would say that if you're considering a career in dispatch, you definitely have to have a passion for um, wanting to help people. Obviously, that's everybody's first go-to thing. They want to help people. But you also have to have a, a little bit of a a wicked sense of humor. You can't be easily, um, you know, offended, things like that, because the things that you'll hear in any dispatch center, I know dispatchers out there can tell me that there's things that, you know, that may not be 100% appropriate, but we joke about to kind of get through the day. Um, it's kind of like a, a coping mechanism, I guess you could say. So go into it with some thick skin because you're going to definitely need it. And also make sure that you're leaning on your, your, um, older dispatchers, if you want to call them that, um, the more experienced dispatchers, because they have so much knowledge and there's so many things, regardless of if you don't feel like they have the skills or not, but they still have that experience that they can give you. Uh, if I had the ability to go back, I would have leaned more on those people when I dealt with my first traumatic incident, because they, they were pros. They knew how to deal with it. They knew how to handle it. And I went back to myself thinking that 
Um, you're not supposed to feel anything. You're not supposed to have emotions. You're a dispatcher. You're not supposed to think of anything um, negative because you're a dispatcher. So I felt really secluded, not knowing that everybody was feeling the exact same thing. I just was too afraid to talk to him because I wanted to be more professional. So don't don't feel like you can't reach out to people because there's so many people that can give you that that leaning shoulder if you need on, you know, to to talk to or whatever. That's awesome advice. Thank you so much for that because it's true. Like you have to it is this really weird thing in the beginning where you're like, I'm trying to show that I can do the job, but also like people have done it, let them help you. You know, it's definitely a weird, weird middle there. Um, That's amazing advice, Rochelle. Thank you so much uh, for being willing to come on the show today. I had a wonderful time chatting with you and I learned so much. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'll be right back with you. Okay. Bye. All right, everybody, that was another amazing episode here on Let's Talk Dispatch. Rochelle, thank you so much for being willing to come on and chat with me today. Um, As Rochelle said, amazing advice. Seriously, lean on your people at the beginning of this career. You know, really find someone who's been doing this for a while in your center that you trust, that you can talk to, because the training is hard. It's long. It's tedious. It's you feel like you can't do nothing right. And that's just the design. That's how it's supposed to be. Um, If you feel overwhelmed, we've all been there and you're going to make it through. You're doing great. Just hang in there. Until next time, everybody stay raspy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Let's Talk Dispatch, a Raspy Dispatcher production. If you like the podcast, don't forget to hit that subscribe button leave a five-star review, and of course, tell a friend. If you want to be a guest, head to the raspydispatcher.com and check out our additional resources. Until next time, stay raspy, everybody.